Hi, I'm Melissa Chen. And I'm Angel Eduardo. We're the hosts of the Fair Perspectives podcast, and we're excited to announce our show is moving to a new YouTube channel. Thank you to all of our listeners who have helped make Fair Perspectives the success that it is, with enough content to need its own home. Keep following the show at our new channel, Fair Perspectives, with the link in the description below. Please subscribe there to make sure you don't miss our upcoming episodes. We're thrilled to have you as part of the Fair community. Hi, and welcome to Fair Perspectives, the official podcast of the pro-human movement brought to you by the Foundation Against Intolerance and Racism. I'm your host, Melissa Chen, and my co-host, who you will hear from shortly, is Angel Eduardo. Today, we speak with Peter Bogosian. Peter is an American author and philosopher. He was an assistant professor of philosophy at Portland State University for 10 years, and his areas of expertise include atheism, critical thinking, pedagogy, scientific skepticism, and the Socratic method. His main focus is bringing the tools of professional philosophers to people in a wide variety of contexts and teaching people how to think through what are often intractable problems. In this episode, we discuss why Peter left PSU, the grievance studies hoax, the coming realignment in our culture war, to rebuild or reform institutions, his work as a founding faculty member at the University of Austin, street epistemology, the problems at NPR, and about how to have impossible conversations. Ladies and gentlemen, I give you Dr. Peter Bogosian. Dr. Peter Bogosian, welcome to Fair Perspectives. Hi, how everybody? Uh, Peter is great. (laughs) <laughs> okay, Peter. I know we should drop the pretense. I, I've known you for a pretty long time. Yeah, really long time. Well over a decade. Yeah. Well, we're, I'm really excited to talk to you because this is the first time that I've talked to you in front of other people and together with Angel as well. So, you know, uh, you've, you've been, I don't know, just doing so much in the last couple of years. I, I, I know that um, you have left Portland State University. Whew, thank the gods. <laughs> To great fanfare, you published this amazing piece that you wrote for Barry Weiss's Substack. Um, and I found it, it was very powerful. I, I'm sure you got a lot of letters um, after writing it. I, I think there was a line that really struck out oh. to me. It was, you know, you talked about how the university transformed a bastion of free inquiry into mm. a social justice factory whose only right. inputs were race, gender, victimhood, and whose only outputs were grievance and division. It's and true. you've written a lot about uh, grievance. You you are the esteemed author of the the conceptual penis as a social construct, um, um, among other foremost papers in the realm of gender studies. So next time That's somebody right. complains about the gender studies scholars' outputs, they can just point to my works and cynical theories and Douglas Murray's work as well, Madness of Crowds. Right, but I don't think that the um, con- conceptual penis is properly you know lauded. I, th- I think if there was a Nobel Prize for for satire that you would have won for something like that. I mean, it is yeah. hard to get through the abstract without really cracking up, but this was accepted in a very respected, 
peer review uh, journal, right? The peer, the conceptual penis wasn't, but um, so it's two. So two things we got here. We got the letter of recommendation, the letter of resignation, and yes. we have the you know we did the conceptual penis first. That was a low rank journal, and then we did a bunch of other papers that were mm. accepted. So here's the thing: nobody on, on the in the grievance industry can admit to the slightest degree that something is wrong. So they vandalized my Wikipedia page and the Wikipedia page of grievance studies saying that we published in low impact factor journals. Okay, I'll give it to you. You want to say that? Then you're claiming the leading feminist studies journal is a low impact journal, which it just is not. You're claiming that gender, place, and culture, which is a high impact factor, is a low, is, is a lowly journal, which is just not true. You, you just can't have your cake and eat it too. So instead of saying, geez, there may be a problem in the field, we go back and say, well, you know, we, we fabricate anything we can to keep the belief in place, any defense mechanism. That's the first thing. And then the second thing is, you know, the crazy thing about that letter of resignation is I had to rewrite that a whole bunch of times. And I had some pretty specific things that I put in there that everybody kept telling me, like Joshua Katz, who's become a very good friend of mine, who's they threw him out of Princeton, and which was a disgrace. Uh, they, they, really, they really screwed him over hardcore. But, you know, I had friends keep telling me, you have to take this out. This is too insane. Nobody's going to believe it. So the letter that you read <laughs> was so watered down and all of the most juicy parts were taken out. I'll give you just, okay, I'll just, give, you, I'll just give you one, one example. So I was brought up on formal charges when somebody asked me if I thought race was a, was a construct or a valid biological category. And I said to them, this is almost a verbatim quote, what I said to them. I said, I don't know. I am a philosopher and an educator. Go ask a biologist. And I pointed to the biology building. So he said, no one's going to believe it. No one's going to believe that you would be brought up on charges for saying, I don't know. But that's exactly what the culture had become. And so what were the specific charges on that? Uh, well, I was brought before. A, uh, I was brought before two people, and of course, my union guy was there. At that point, I was seeing my union guy more than anybody else, and they asked me all these questions, uh -huh. and they basically interrogated me about my, you know, did you say this? Why did you say this? And and so, basically, so what you should be doing is rewarding people when they say, "I don't know," because if you don't, uh -huh. then everybody pretends to know things they don't know, like they just go along with the dominant. Right. Orthodoxy. Hmm. Well, it's interesting to me that that happened to you, given that didn't Katanchi, uh, the the new Supreme Court justice, oh, yeah. actually essentially said the same thing when asked about you know what her beliefs uh, are about what a woman is. She did say she didn't know. I'm not a biologist, like, like verbatim. Right. So it's to me a bit strange that um, that would be okay in that context, and uh, you would be brought up on charges. And and I think it does speak to something very rotten in the administration in the bureaucracy of, of um, you know, of what's going on in academic life right now. And it seems, I'm sure you have this feeling of being um, free now, of oh. finally being, you know, like it must feel You have no idea how wonderful my life has become. I'm not beholden to maniacs, to petty ideologues. I'm not beholden to, I mean, yeah, it's just the best decision I ever made. I can't believe I stayed so long. I know why I stayed so long because the pandemic hit and I had health insurance and, you know, the time everybody was washing their vegetables and such. You know, I, I had a, I had a meeting with the, I couldn't, the president, uh, Stephen Percy wouldn't give me five. I asked for five minutes and I kept being told by his staff that he was too busy. He's, by the way, 
in the videos that we put out, the sidewalk videos, he came and participated in one of those for a bit. I don't think he, he must not have recognized me. So I met with one of the deans and I, I spoke with one of the deans. I got a five minute meeting and his secretary kept coming in. Oh, you have another meeting. You haven't, he didn't have another meeting. But I said, you know, I'm, I'm deeply concerned about the institution and what's happening to it. And the Foundation for Individual Rights in Education, Greg Lukanoff's organization, has posted Portland State University. I think this was in 2021 or 20. I think it's 21. Could be wrong. But Portland State University is one of the worst colleges for free speech. And he said, he looked at me in the eye and he said, it's a good thing to be on those lists. And it just blew my mind. It just completely blew my mind. Wow. <laughs> You know, <laughs> so, I mean, this is a bad, I guess this is a bad time to ask you this question now, but I was going to say, do you feel that anything has been lost? Because I think on the one hand, it's, it's really great that you have the ability, that we have the ability now to kind of go off on our own and, you know, do, for example, the Barry Weiss thing, where she leaves the New York Times, has her own Substack. And it's basically building her own media Correct. empire, right? It's, it's amazing that that's possible. And it's wonderful that we have the opportunity to do that because it's great for freedom of expression. It's great right. for diversity right. of thought, or at least ostensibly it is, right? It, it, can, it can very easily turn into silos and whatnot. But there is something that's being seeded, right? It's the institutions themselves, which I think are really important. And I worry about what happens next? Like it, it almost feels like a retreat. And I wonder what you think about that. So you've placed your finger on the next culture war. So uh, the American mind, I said that this is culture war 2.0, where I call it the great realignment, where we have one side, non-woke or anti-woke atheists and anti-woke Christians aligning together with, uh, uh, against woke Christians and woke atheists. What you just pointed to is the next culture war, the role that legacy institutions ought to play in society. And so you have people like Steven mm. Pinker on one side of the equation. So he, Steven Pinker's a you know Harvard man, legacy guy, anti-woke, atheist, unbelievably supportive of my work, great guy, nothing but good things to say about Steve. With that said, he falls on the side that believes that legacy institutions can be saved. And then you have people like, Balashis, Mark Andreessen, Pano Canulas from University of Austin, Barry, Neil Ferguson, Ayan Hersili, uh, other people, broadly the Bitcoin people or the cryptocurrency people who believe that legacy institutions cannot be saved and have to be uh, burned to the ground might be too strong, but we have to build new things. Mm. And so I, I don't, mm -hmm. look, look, this is a hard pill to swallow. It's kind of a hard idea to even get across, but, but here it is. If you, look, if you actively study a process that takes you away from reality, that's bad for you. It would be better if you did nothing. The, only, the, the best way to explain that is through non-functional martial arts. If you study a martial art that's not functional, uh, you know, like Tai Chi yeah. or something. Karate. Yeah, karate more broadly. Yeah. Yeah. And you know, even someone with right. just a few months of MMA training or jujitsu is just going to give you the beatdown of your life because you, you know, you're taught to keep your hands low or you're taught to do whatever silliness you're taught. But the same thing is true if you're taught processes like standpoint epistemology or what was that? I was going to write a Substack piece about this. Um, you, you, what did she say in the hearing? You, you asked me a question, but I decided to answer my own 
question, which was more interesting, something like that. It, you know, it, it's this, <laughs> idea, this idea that the responses that we give don't have to hook to anything because our lived experience trumps anything anybody says to us. Mm-hmm. So, but the bottom line there is I think that we have created institutions that have safeguarded faulty epistemologies that take us away from reality. So rather than feed those legacy institutions, which Pinker would certainly agree that, they, that they're rotten, but he just thinks they can be reformed. And Dawkins just bo- joined the board of the University right. of Austin. I don't think they can be reformed. In fact, I'm positive oh, wow. they cannot. Well, but Peter, if, if we follow the logic of this, though, I mean, and look at how deep the institutional rot is. Right. I mean, this is beyond the universities. This is when Science Magazine, the premier Correct. scientific journal of our time, is actually putting out, you know, um, op-eds and, and, and talking about racial justice, citation justice That's, or something uh, like thank that. Thank you for mentioning that. Elevate, right. right? That's a good That's example. That's the best example. Like that. Yeah. And, and can you briefly explain what, what that yeah, is? Yeah, sure. I'm to, so, to so happy you mentioned that because this is, okay, so this is one of those ideas that's so insane that I'm going to explain it and I'm going to have 500 comments like, that's not true. That doesn't exist. Nobody's that crazy. But I've been saying things like this for years, even the concept of equity. I've been saying the same thing. No, no one believes that. Fringe people. Okay. So here's citation justice. Citation justice is when you forward the citations, and I'll just define that, disambiguate that in a second. When you forward the citations of people whose ancestors have been oppressed, like, I don't know, homosexuals or something. And so, so uh, you, you want to, you'll right. form new bodies of literature and you'll only pull from peer-reviewed articles due to the immutable characteristics of the author's ancestors. So you're automatically limiting mm-hmm. to a tremendous extent the type of new research that you can conduct and publish and the new products that you can bring to market with this. Do you think that the Chinese are beholden to this it's not even a species ideology. It's just insane. Nope. It's, it's such an insane concept. Nobody who's seriously thought about this for five seconds could think, oh yeah, well, we've got to look at the race of the author and then determine whether or not we could cite him in the, in the paper based upon his race. We should be moving towards exactly the opposite side. That's the whole idea of blind peer review. That's why it's blind. Mm. Mm-hmm. Right. But I, th- I mean, that's, it's actually not that shocking. It's not hard for me to believe that because it seems like it's just an extension of, you know, support black mm-hmm. businesses or read black authors or read female authors or whatever. It's, it's just an extension of that sort of mentality of put the identity categories first as a way to kind of balance the scales of history and whatnot. I think that's, it's much more consequential, right? Like any, any given person, if they decide I'm only going to read black people Correct. That's not really going to have a profound effect on anything except their own reading habits, right? But peer-reviewed studies being pulled on the basis not of the content, but on the immutable characteristics of the the authors. That's, yeah, that's going to have some devastating It has to in the long run. Because you're cutting off entire veins of research literature. And even within a vein of research literature, you're not taking the best research. So- you're right. handicapping yourself right. in terms of a global economic strategy as well. Right. Right. Yeah. So this gets back to the institution thing, because what we're talking about is a kind of increasing, I don't know, I don't know what, what a good metaphor is that isn't, that isn't automatically just insulting, but it seems like a, a growing 
infection, right? It's spreading deeper and deeper into the bodies, right? That are important. And, you know, I, I, I don't know. I don't know what to do. I, you know, my, my question about the institution thing is, is not so much that the current, the, the institutions that currently exist must be saved, but that institutions are kind of inevitable, right? It's kind of the thing of everyone's got their own individual substack, and then we're, everyone is just kind of reinventing the magazine at this point, right? Like, I really wish there was some way that I could subscribe to Barry Substack and Peter Substack and all these people's Substack and just pay one bill. Wouldn't that be great? That'd be so much more convenient. And then here we are, boom, we have an institution, right? So I guess that kind yeah, well, of brings uh, us to the University of Austin. Let's linger on that for a second. Well, you, you can subscribe to Barry's Substack and my Substack for free and you can yeah. p- pay a, a monthly fee, which is all, all my Substack for sure, example, sure. goes to my nonprofit, NPA. I think the thing that's really important to understand, this is a larger conversation. I don't know if you want to go there, but the accrediting agencies don't really accredit for anything. It's a, it's a cartel. It's a big racket, uh, which I'll, I'll use this to segue into University of Austin. So, Because I just learned oh. this one particular feature. In order to become accredited, you need to graduate one class first. There's simply no reason for that. So you have to graduate a class of students before you can become accredited. Mm -hmm. So the second class can become accredited. So there are almost the opposite of a concept of safeguards that are in place. If you don't accredit your students and the University of Austin is going down the road of accreditation, then their degrees, then they wouldn't be able to apply, for example, to many graduate schools. But let's talk about the University of Austin and then we can fill in those specifics. So uh, the president of University of Austin, so I'm a founding faculty. The president, Pano Kanulis, is a truly remarkable guy. He's a very, uh, in, in one sense, he's a very traditional guy, St. John's, great books, believes like I do that people need to read the original text as opposed to secondary or tertiary comment, commentary on. I think you're, you know, you should, people should be reading Descartes as, as opposed to what someone else says about Descartes. He has said, and I think he's absolutely 100% spot on, the solution to left-wing or woke ideological capture of the institutions, specifically the academic institutions, is not to build a right-wing university. That's not the solution. That's going to do nothing but polarize. And the, the solution is to find a truth-seeking and to build and create a truth-seeking institution that divorces itself from the establishment and the legacy, uh, legacy academia to build something entirely new. And that's what the University of Austin is trying to do. Okay. I was going to ask you about that. I'm glad you said that because I was going to basically ask you what's being, what sort of safeguards are being implemented to avoid the kind of the, the risk. I think it's a real risk of, you know, basically University of Austin just turning into anti-woke university. And that just becomes a thing. Phenomenal question. So here's the cool thing. The remarkable thing is a few months ago, we we spent a weekend. uh, It was like a who's who, Neil Ferguson, Glenn Lowry. I mean, it was like a who's who. People were there. And we we had an incredible conversation. We broke into groups. The conversations were recorded. Like things that we're literally building a university from nothing. Do you require SATs? Do you require essays? If you require essays, how do you know that the people who, who submitted the essays are the people who wrote the essays? Do you have grades? How often do you have grades? 
Do you have commentary? Like Reed College in Portland, Oregon just has commentary. They don't have grades. Like, should you have a gym? Hmm. Should you even have a basketball hoop? Like we're building this from nothing. So we're trying to, 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 I mean, it's a, it's a remarkable opportunity. I mean, truly amazing. And they had the, the first proof of concept, by the way, a few weeks ago, it was in Dallas at Harlan Crow's Old Parkland. An incredible, I mean, truly remarkable. They had a uh, facility. They had, the artwork was incredible. They had a, a replica of a Roman courthouse. I mean, it was just, it was just incredible. <laughs> Kathleen Stock was there. Deidre McCluskey was there. They had a debate, actually, to talk about gender issues. Barry Weiss was there. Her talk was incredible. Ayan taught in the, the first round. So you're having world-class public intellectuals, well-established people come in. And I, I truly tell you from the bottom of my heart, that was the, one of the most, if not the most amazing intellectual experiences I have ever had in my whole life. 40 kids in two groups. Mm-hmm unbelievably intelligent, talking honestly about a wide range of issues, challenging, questioning. I just found it was, it was an incredible experience. Putting me over the, over the grills, raking me over the coals. I loved it. Yeah, they were. So they were uh, actively challenged. We'd come back from an event and they would just gather around and they just, I believe in moral facts. Many of them either were agnostic or didn't believe in moral facts. And we just went at it for literally hours on end. And they just sat, we just sat around in the hotel lobby and we just talked. We sat around in old Parkland and we just talked. It was an incredible experience. That's why I imagine college to be like in America. That's, that was my, you know, understanding of what it would be like. And I mean, to be fair, when, when I got here, it was still kind of like that. So I, I did get experience that, that education, but, um, you know, of, of course things have, have changed at least since the climate has changed at least in 2010 onwards. And I know, Peter, you have been so early right. talking about this. And I do remember the early pushback you got. I do remember, you know, a lot of people just saying, oh, that's just the fringe. It will never get out. You know, it will never get out of um, this, uh, just that, you know, the grievance layer. And of course, now it has infected the rest of academia. Right. Now it's burst out of the confines of academia. It's in boardrooms. It's in the media. It's, it's, it's kind of taken over Correct. so much of American life. Could you speak to the other, you mentioned you, you have a, a, a nonprofit now, so you have the National Progress Alliance. Could you speak to what you are doing in, uh, in, in these other areas for, for MPA or how you are intending to change the culture? Uh, sure. So it's, uh, we've launched ourselves fully in the culture war. It's a nonpartisan. I, I genuinely believe that free speech and open inquiry are nonpartisan values. And, and I remember when I grew up, the Republicans were the ones who were against free speech, or at least that was the narrative being pushed. Conservative Democrats like Tipper Gore's wife were against, you know, lyrics and songs. But now yeah. it's been, remember that? Yeah. Now it's been oh, yeah. almost completely co-opted by the Democrats. And so speech is violence, silence is violence too. Our mutual friend, Michael Schellenberger and I did, did a piece on that a chart. Um, so and one of the things NPA does is it tries to change the moral mind by raising public consciousness of, of free speech, reliable epistemologies, uh, solid sciences, whether or not, uh, and again, it's in a nonpartisan way, whether or not um, our institutions do, are doing what they're claiming to doing. Are they teaching people to think rigorously about things? 
we don't only focus on the universities and, and academic institutions, the academies, but we, we focus on that's about 50% of our energy. But you've been doing, you've been putting out these great videos, right? Like, so you, you're going back to campus, you know, now as ex-professor yeah. Peter Bogosian, and you're engaging with students in ways that are, I mean, different. Yeah. And I, I've been shocked at how well those videos are doing. I never, I was always too busy when I was an academic to put any time into my YouTube channel, but we worked on it for the last, I think, six months and it's up to like 77,000 subscribers, uh, which is mm. interesting. I just learned it's in the top 1% of all subscribers on YouTube. Looks like it's growing to a hundred thousand. So basically, we put we, it's it's a street epistemology, which I talked about in my first book. It's a visual representation of street epistemology, taking epistemology, what you know, how you know, and how you know it, out of the academy and bringing it to people on the streets. And we put people on a Likert scale and a line. Strongly agree. Can't remember exactly what it is we change them, but strongly agree, agree, slightly agree, neutral, slightly disagree, disagree, strongly disagree. And we'll put a claim up. And again, these all these videos are on, on YouTube. We'll, we'll put a claim up and then everybody starts on the neutral line. Then they'll walk to a line. And then I'll ask them questions about what it would take to change their mind and whether or not someone else on a different line persuades them. But the key thing is to change the moral mind, you have to make it a value for people to walk from one line to another. Like You have to make it a good thing that people change their mind on the basis of incoming evidence. So that's one of the the so we did I think uh, we, we had ten schools planned or nine, but Brown canceled us. Berkeley almost canceled us. Of course, Yale canceled us. They're, they're the worst of that. The, they're real intellectual cesspool. And uh, <laughs> and and we ended up doing the other ones at uh, here in Oregon. And uh, you know the the video I think that's most interesting is the social workers who come down from the roof. Yeah. I don't know if you've seen that. Yeah, they were giving you the finger at first. Yeah, it's a, a, right. a remarkable video of what it looks like to be in a cult and to pay for it. You're actually paying to be in a cult and credentialing people who then go out and influence things mm -hmm. in society, institutions in society. They bring their insanity with them. So uh, what is your, I guess, the, the, the overarching goal with doing that, right? Because it's, I find it really interesting that you have this perspective that, you know, the institutions are kind of corroded beyond beyond uh redemption repair. Uh -huh. repair yeah there you go that's a better way uh so corroded beyond repair but here you are kind of you know jumping back in there and engaging directly with the students who are there is there is there a tinge of hope there that you can you can do something no, and is that, no is that your intention or no, there's no okay, hope. So, so what, what are we doing? What, what, what's going well, on? There's there? no Why hope. even do it? Yeah, there's no hope for institutions, but there's always hope for people. Gotcha. Okay. And so when you look at the responses, the overwhelming majority of people, they want the, the game, whatever you want to call it, the epistemological exercise to go on longer. They, they want to keep, they keep asking questions after. People, Aristotle writes about this, people want to know what's true. They yearn for the truth. They have a hunger to know what's true. So the purpose of those exercises is to help people calibrate their confidence to the evidence they have for their beliefs. And we live in a culture, I think that this is a fundamental human phenomenon, where our beliefs, we always place more confidence in our beliefs than the evidence we have for those beliefs. And so part of the epistemological exercise is to help people calibrate their beliefs to the confidence, to calibrate their confidence in a belief to the evidence. Eventually, what will happen if you do those a few times, 
you'll be able to impose that exercise as kind of like a Socratic method. The highest form of the Socratic method is mm-hmm. asking, imposing that on yourself, not dialectically with another person. So there's always hope for individuals, even if there's no hope for institutions. Well, I would just say, like, do you have a, a, a success story that really sticks out to you from this, this series of, of endeavors going into the campus and finding people and doing this thing? Yeah, success to me is measured in one of two ways. One, it's measured when somebody walks to a different line because that shows not only you, but it helps them understand that they're calibrating their belief. They have a more accurate calibration of the confidence in their belief. The other thing is, and this may seem a little odd, but if somebody says to you at the end of the exercise, you know, I was 80% sure that I was on the right line. But after thinking about it and reviewing it and really mm. being interrogated, if you will, uh, I changed my confidence level to 90%. And by the way, when I was at the University of Austin, I grilled the shit out of those kids. I, I, I basically put a few of them on a line one-on-one and I just sat there for a half an hour and grilled them. And people mm. would, you know, you asked about success. People would say, amazing. Nobody's ever mm. challenged me like that. Nobody's ever mm-hmm. truly questioned my beliefs to that extent. That's the educator in you. Oh yeah, it's, yes. it's it's it's. I mean, it's it's what should be normative on college campuses that we don't we don't get defensive when someone disagrees with us. We we listen and understand. We don't have to agree with them, but we have to try to understand. So I usually ask those views. Okay, do, do you understand the point of view? Not do you agree with it, but do you understand understand it? And then mm-hmm. the the key question is, what would it take to change your mind? That's the key to this whole thing. And then ideally, you'd have it separated. Then I'm going to ask you guys a question. Ideally, you'd have it separated so that some people would be on the strongly agree, some people on disagree. And then you'd walk back and forth between the people and you say, okay, did anything he say convince you? What would he have to say to convince you? So you're basically facilitating a dialogue in which people hone their ability to make better, more discerning judgments. That, which is exactly the opposite of what we have now. We have these narratives that are being pushed. I think that was very striking in the video you just referenced about the Portland State University, um, right outside the School of Social Work, where the students, you know, instead of being guided by by truth, as you say, what Aristotle, you know, has written, written a lot about, um, they seem to be guided by anti-harm principle because they were saying to you mm-hmm. that simply putting up this question is is harming students is harming the trans individuals and i think the statement was that there were right. two genders impact yeah. over intent and yeah yeah there are two ge- impact so in, over in this intent. framework of street epistemology how do you surmount that obstacle how do yeah. you get how do you get through to people who do see this as danger who couch this in terms of safetyism of, of that you know even mere questioning this line of questioning is bringing danger and and you're being violent to, to uh, the individual's harms. How do you, right. can you even talk to them? How does that work? Yeah, well, you saw in, in the video exactly how you did that. <laughs> and I just want to be clear, I'm not the best person at this. I might have coined the phrase. I might have kind of started the movement. I wrote, I, you know, made the movement, if you will. But people like Anthony Magdabosco, Reed Nicewonder, other people are better at this than I am. Because that that community kind of evolved. So in the, my book, how to how to have impossible conversations, I talk about how to have a conversation with an ideologue. 
And so, of course, it's very difficult, and it's very difficult when people come in groups as well. That's why Mormons go to the doors in two. Hmm. Um, Interesting. <laughs> yeah, and, yeah, and yeah, and you also there's a whole line of literature about about that too, and religious psychology. But it's possible. One of the the key things is you have to have a frame of listening, and you have to figure out what your goal is in those conversations. So, so let me ask you a question. So, I've been doing this on college campuses, and one of the things that I want to do is I want to go to conservative areas. I don't know if it's regions of the country, et cetera, and I want to do the same thing. So do you have any ideas, other places where I can go to play that spectrum game? Hillsdale. I mean, uh, Liberty University, Hillsdale. I was thinking about a non, I was thinking about a oh. non-college. Um, I don't know, go, just look, look at the electoral map and find the, the Trump counties, right? Because I, I think, I think I you'd be able to that, find... Yeah. You know, ju- there's just just as much. I mean, the the moment you have groups and tribes, the the tribal dynamics will set in. A version of cancel culture will set in. Um, a version of of being intolerant right. to pluralistic ideas will set in. Right? It's just a it's just a form of gatekeeping, really. And and you'll find that you know I'll never forget when Tommy Lauren actually voiced her opinion on, on abortion. She came out as actually pro-choice. She got canned from the blaze. Uh, really shortly after. Um, those two things were clearly not unrelated to me. Yeah. But but in conservative circles, right. that- See, the right true. does it too, right? The right does it yes, too. Yes, but- Yeah, it's like you said. I mean, I, I, I grew up with the same sort of thing of like, oh, you know, the right, they're the ones who want you to not say certain things. And they're the ones who, wants to, who want to impose upon you a certain belief system or set of behaviors. Right. Uh, that's what I grew up my my understanding was like, oh yeah, they keep wanting to do that to us, and we don't like that because we're liberal, right? But then, right? But but are. the but you can it's, tell it's a, it's who's in power thing. based on who's yeah. being intolerant, right? So yeah, but based upon what ideas you can't exactly. question or or what responses questioning those exactly. ideas yields. Exactly. So so you can tell who has the reins of power in that sense because I mean, you know, growing up in Singapore, we we have a conservative government, and so to be to take the free speech position in Singapore makes you a lib, makes you a lefty. <laughs> And, and then in America Sorry. here, because the, the left is in power, especially culturally, you know, just advocating for free speech is now seen as a right-wing position. And so I always laugh about, about this quantum yeah, superposition where I am both a left-wing yeah. and right-wing depending on my geography because I support the same principle. Yeah, but, right. but you can tell who's in power. It's because we have a conservative government in power. So challenging that is, mm-hmm. is you know, automatically just makes you a, a left-wing person just because you want freedom of speech. Yeah, and that's that's the thing. It's a nonpartisan value that I said before: free speech and open inquiry. And we should be able to ask any sincere people should be able to ask any questions they want to ask of people, mm-hmm. and especially in our academic institutions. But these institutions are actually damaging people. Truly, yeah. they're epistemologically damaging people. They're throwing out ideas that are completely untethered to reality, and they're passing them off as fact. And and it's yeah it's worse in some places than others. But look, I'm sick of complaining about it. You guys can complain about it if you want. I'm going to build new things, and I'm going to help make mm-hmm. the University of Austin succeed. And not only the University of Austin, I sincerely hope that Stephen Blackwood's Ralston College succeeds. That's uh, in at Atlanta, Georgia. I hope all these other new institutions coming online are going to succeed, and they're going to give the Ivies a run for their money. I know. I am unshakably convinced that the University of Austin is a hundred million dollars and 550 wow. acres of land, over $100 million at this point. Yeah, because people are just sick of this. They're sick of it. Mm-hmm. Now, you said something really interesting, Peter, when you were talking about the 
street epistemology thing yeah. that you 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 tried to I forget exactly how you said it, but you you basically gave value to them moving from one line to another. Correct. What how did you do that? And and do you think it stuck with them? Um so one of the ways you could do it, it's interesting because when I did that at the University of Austin, people spontaneously clapped, which I thought was interesting. Um, hmm. So basically, you you give them rewards. You basically say, oh, it's great. Thank you, et cetera. But okay. there's, there's something far more profound going on. Um, the, the more, I remember Melissa said in a tweet, uh, nobody outside of physics should mention the word, should use the word valence. So I'm not going to say it, but it was the first word that came to my mind. So the more- We've both said it in this podcast. Okay. She said it, I've said it. Okay, so, so. The, more, the more moral a proposition is, um, you learn something. It, it took me 20 years to figure this out. People will stand on a particular line, strongly agree, slightly agree, et cetera, not because they have evidence for that, but because they think that standing on the line is the right thing to do. They think it makes right. them a good person to stand on the line. And they, so, so there's a moral reason for why they stand on the line. And as you extend, as you start to examine beliefs in the moral realm, you realize that people really have no evidence. And I don't mean little evidence, I mean no evidence. But when they do have some kind of evidence to buttress their confidence in a belief, it's that they formed, they had a moral impulse, they formed the moral belief first, and then they looked to their epistemic landscape to support the moral belief. So people stand on particular lines, not on the basis of evidence, but on the basis of morality. And once you understand that, so, so they're only, you know, just kind of, um, uh, Jonathan Rausch's books have been, been wonderful. The last one was fantastic, but it's great. But, you know, that's kind of colored my, my thinking to a large extent um, or, or, or t to an extent. But you realize that if you do these enough, that it's, they're not difficult to do. They just take kind of um, practice and they take a kind of, I don't want to say savoir-faire, but they take a kind of, um, you, you have to, tr okay, so, so do you remember in the video where the person came down and there was a guy in that video when the social workers, and he just didn't answer any questions. Mm. I've been yeah, thinking yeah. about that in relation to, I can't, I can't remember the woman's name who said, you know, you asked me a question, but I decided to answer another question because it, it was just more interesting to me. There's something about what we're teaching people now. It's the opposite of the Socratic method. So instead of latching on to a question and answering it directly without obfuscating, they're just ignoring the whole question. They're, they're joining intellectual communities where any response that you give is considered equally good to any other response because it's your lived experience. The consequence of this is not only does it make it impossible for you to answer a direct question, but nobody external can adjudicate any possible complaint or dispute that you might have about anything. And the consequence of that is you, you among the consequences, you create screeching babies. You create people who yell or people who have to make assertions because they don't make arguments. They can't make arguments because they're trained not to. Does that answer your question? Yes. Yeah, yeah, I think so. But, but I wonder if it has to do, you know, so for example, you, you mentioned, um, you know, kind of just giving kind of uh, verbal reinforcement saying like, oh, great. I'm glad you moved. That's great. That, that psychologically just works, right? Pretty much. But that, I think, I yeah. think you, you need, you need, start, starting to throw, you need other things no, no, from, from, from Haas's negotiations. For example, you need uh, building a golden bridge from the Harvard negotiation project. 
so that- Yeah, um, I was getting to that. Yeah, right. it makes it easier for people to change their mind. Oh, I used to believe that too until I heard this. Or right. like the opposite of a golden bridge is when someone says something and you say, oh, you idiot, you should, I can't believe you still believe that, something like that. Like you need right. to make it easy. Um, and there's also literature from the stuff from the educational literature on pro-social modeling where you have to walk across the line. And some of those you'll see what videos will put out. People wanted to do those to me. And I let them, I stood on the line and moved and played the game too. I wouldn't ever ask anybody to do something that I wouldn't do myself. Right. So yeah, that, that actually takes me to, to the thing I was going to ask you was how do you kind of point that high powered perception at yourself to quote uh, Silence of the Lambs? How, yeah. how do you... How do you ensure that you're also doing the thing and that you're not kind of calcifying in your own perspective? Oh, that's an easy question because, to answer. Yeah, you have okay. to hold your beliefs less tenaciously. Okay. So you have to lower the, the you, you, in order to correctly align your, uh, to correctly calibrate the beliefs to the, you, the confidence you have in a belief to the evidence, um, mm -hmm. it's always best to be more epistemically humble about the things you believe. And we, mm -hmm. leave, we live in a culture right now, particularly a polarized culture on the extremes. And yes, the left do control our institutions in which people are putting forth conclusions with not only no evidence, but like evidence against it, you know, implicit bias or trigger warnings. I'm thinking of a lot of things that are morally fashionable, they're putting um, statements. So we need to be extraordinarily humble about the things we claim to know. But we live mm -hmm. in a culture at this particular cultural moment in which a kind of, um, fueled by social media, a kind of certainty, a kind of moral conviction is lauded and valued as a good thing. And so we have yeah. to try to change the culture, you know, like for example, when we have to reward people when they say, I don't know, as opposed to bringing them up on charges. We have to, we have to make fundamental constitutive elements of the culture so we can move together as a society, build consensus, et cetera. And it's just the opposite is happening right now. Yeah. I'd love to see a version of the game about where the question is, can we save our institutions? And it's Peter Bogosian standing on the line and someone else, <laughs> someone else doing the questioning. That'd be interesting. Maybe you should do a video. Yeah, you can do that. The key thing is, you know, what I can, okay. So, so two things. One, always ask someone, what would it take to change your mind? Two, right. never ask somebody what it would take to change your mind unless you're willing to have someone ask you what it would take for you to change your mind. So what it would take for me to change my mind is the entire system of tenure would have to be radically transformed mm. because we have ideologues who have positions for life, who have, I don't want to talk about this too much because I've talked about it so much before, idea laundered. Right, right. Basically, they've, they have ideas that are moral impulses that they've put through journals that they teach as fact. You would have to have a fundamental change in the system because the system is broken now. Yeah. So, so this is really important. So this is what the legitimacy crisis is from pulling off from the German philosopher, Jürgen Habermas. Our institutions, people do not trust their institutions and, and they do not trust their institutions because they're not worthy of trust. So I don't know if you can see behind me, but uh, I'm going out. NPR is next on my list. I stopped donating to NPR. Ask me why. And we're doing a show, All Things Reconsidered. My, one of my good friends and I, Matt Thornton and I are doing a show. Mm -hmm. So the postmodernists have it exactly backwards. It's not that everything's about power. You know, brands like, you know, um, Coca-Cola or, or what have you, they have, or McDonald's, or, or, or um, they have a kind of consistency that people have come to trust. 
and we don't trust our our our, our legacy institutions in particular, our media, our our. We don't even trust the judiciary, particularly what's happened at the Supreme Court. H- how do we make it so that that's it, those institutions are worthy of trust? Well, they have to become worthy of trust. And so, how are you going? How how are you planning to go after NPR to do that? What is the? Can you describe that project a little? Yeah, I'd be ha- happy to. So let's let's talk a little bit about NPR. I'm telling you this as a lifetime listener of NPR. And not only a listener, every single time I got in the car, not only did I put it on, I was a donor to NPR. And I am heartbroken about the turn that the station has taken. It's completely woke. And they're pushing narratives. They're not pushing back on uh, people they interview. Uh, they're not asking hard questions. And uh, so I'm, I'm, my response to that is I'm going to have a five-episode series uh, called All Things Reconsidered, which is a takeoff of All Things Considered. I'm doing it with a very close friend of mine, Matt Thornton. And the first time we're going to play, the first segment is we play a clip. And in the clip, we analyze the position and, and the problems. And then we say how we can make it better. Because I don't want to defund NPR. I don't think NPR should be defunded. In fact, I'm adamantly opposed to any kind of defunding of NPR. I want an NPR that every single person can listen to and trust. I want an NPR that's legitimate. I want an NPR that I can turn on and say, wow, like I got something out of that. It didn't push a narrative to me. I feel confident in, in talking to this, that I have the right information that I can base a decision on, or if I'm a policymaker, that I can inform public policy with. NPR has become a disgrace. And I don't want it defunded. I want it, I want it positively reformed. We have to reform it. So. That's one segment. The ant- you sound like the Steven Pinker of NPR. <laughs> yeah, so I do believe some institutions, <laughs> I do believe, I do believe yeah. NPR can be reformed, even though it's a legacy institution that's ideologically mm. captured at the moment. I do believe it can be reformed. I'm not saying it's going to be easy to be reformed. That's the other thing. Sure. That's the other thing. I just, yeah. I, I just want to punctuate this with some saying, a lot of these fixes aren't particularly difficult, right? When you have Ibram X. Kendi on, you just ask a few hard questions. You don't just softball everything. Or if you have authors on of who all kind of, uh, whose work all forwards a particular, you know, orthodoxy, and you don't want to ask them hard questions, great. Don't ask them hard questions, but find someone else from the other who has different perspectives and ask, invite them on and don't ask them hard questions either. Or have people who forward an orthodoxy on and ask them really hard questions and don't make shit up. Don't say that people believe things on the other side who simply don't believe those things. Like I was listening to a Melissa Block clip the other day. She, I can't remember the exact quotation, but it was something like, uh, all people who do not support anti-racism are anti-patriotic, something, something like that. I mean, it was so crazy. Nobody believes that. So I think the reform of this institution this particular legacy institution will be easier because you're not dealing with ideologues who have jobs for mm. life. So, so we're going to have a couple of segments. One segment, we're going to analyze and say how we can make it better. One segment, we're going to have a behind the scenes where we have people who have worked for NPR and they're talking about the narratives that they push. That's going to be a very brief thing. One segment we have is uh, I stopped listening to NPR when because almost everybody has a story of when they stopped listening to NPR. Like what, what, you, I, you heard something, you, you, what, what was your story? And we're collecting, I think, 50 stories. And we're going to play two stories an episode. If we do a second season, we'll play those. 
And then we're going to have a, a reverse pledge drive. And the reverse pledge drive is we'd like to get 100,000 signatures where people pledge to not donate to NPR. Okay. To put pressure on NPR <laughs> where, where it hurts, basically. Yeah. And, and again, you know, I remember when I was at Portland State, I remember I was at a faculty meeting and one of the faculty members said, every single time I, I heard, I hear anything about Portland State, it's always negative by a conservative station. And I said in that meeting, I'm like, you've got to be kidding me. Like, you have brought this on yourself. This is, so for example, when, when I don't know if you know who Bruce Gilley is, the guy who wrote yep. the case for colonialism. Yeah, he put, he, he wanted to do a conservative political thought. Even at Berkeley, they have a conservative political thought. And the class was rejected because it didn't have enough diversity. So you're bringing this on yourself, right? So, it, you know, all you have to say is when you're attacked by conservative media, say, look, well, we have Bruce Gilley. He's teaching a class conservative political thought, even though I personally am not Bogosian as conservative. Like, say, we have Bogosian. He's doing whatever the hell he's doing. Like, don't create, don't create an environment that opens you up to the very things that people are accusing you of and then complain that you're being accused of those things. That's just dishonest right. and disingenuous. And I think the egregious thing about NPR is that it is publicly funded. It is, it is our public radio. Correct. And, and the fact that our public radio has swung so far into indoctrination mode that I mean, what is the telos of having something like that, right? Like th this, this is valuable to society, to a functioning, healthy, civil, democratic society. And to lose Have it to is actually a pretty, pretty big deal. Couldn't agree um, more. I, I remember when I stopped listening to NPR, I used to listen to it religiously in graduate school because I was spending so much of my time doing boring stuff like pipetting and waiting for centrifuges. So I was always listening in my, to NPR on my bench. And so I knew all the shows. <laughs> right. And actually, my favorite was Car Talk. It wasn't even a news program. Um, oh, yeah, yeah. And then yeah, yeah. I, I remember, I think this was towards the end of Obama's term. You started to see all, they, there was this radical shift because of who was likely to assume office. And that's when I personally couldn't listen to NPR anymore. Yeah, it was obvious. Hmm. Um, yeah, and I want an NPR that I can listen to again. I want an NPR that people who can't afford you know, phones or iPod, whatever their technology device, or they don't have a plug-in in their car where they can get in and they can get news that they can trust. That's non-ideological, that's not right-wing, left-wing, that has no wings. They ask hard questions. That's the kind of NPR that not only do I want, but that as a taxpayer, I'm mm. demanding. I applaud mm. that effort, yeah. <laughs> so we'll see, five, five episodes. So I got a lot going on. That's just one of the many projects I have going on. <laughs> Been busy. I've been busy so, since I graduated. Best year of my life since I resigned. Yeah, you're 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 all over the place. Now you you did you mentioned that you wrote how to have impossible conversations. Yep. And that's that's the the center of the bullseye for me. I'm so interested in our inability to communicate with one another. Right. Especially across these kind of ideological divides and what we can do to improve that sort of thing. So your book is one way. Um, but, uh, you know, I, I'm curious what you think about the difference between, you know, online discourse and outside discourse. Yeah. Because I, I call, I call, you know, like social media, I call it the boss level of discourse. It's kind of like you got to get all the way to the end and you have to have all those skills racked up. You have to be really, really good before you can be effective. 
That's a great all the guardrails. I love that the boss know? level. It puts it in hard mode immediately. I love the yeah. boss level. That's a great way to describe it. Especially yeah, so with, how do you with how do you anonymity. think about it? Right. Exactly. Yeah. Yeah. And, I think you know, there's yeah. no there's no eye contact that you don't you don't get emotion those subtle things that really help when you're in person. There's none of that. So what do you think about that? Should we even be trying? That's a trying finish the sentence. Trying to do what? Trying Should to, we even be trying to have? I mean, the, the thing is, you know, especially during the pandemic and now it's kind of, you know, uh, most of the discourse was happening on these platforms. And this is where a lot of people get not just their information, but that's where they get their interaction. And that's, that's where correct. they interact with people who don't agree with them. That's where they find those people. And, and that's where they get the bulk of their interaction, right? Their social bubbles are fairly homogenous, but then they go online and it's, you know, a free yeah, fall. yeah. There's no, there's no easy answer to that. This very complicated question. You know, a lot of people online they just play a persona. Some people online yeah. they're just anonymous. Most, I think that even now, I haven't looked at that literature since I think 2020. But, but there's just not a lot of literature on it because we don't have long, long-term studies on that. We, you know, this is the online thing. It might seem like it's been around forever, but it's a very, it's a fairly recent phenomenon. In fact, it's very recent if you look at it in terms of, um, so I don't think that the data is out yet. So anything I'd say on that would just be speculative. I do, I do want to say one, one other thing though. So, you know, from how to have impossible conversation, I have an app about that, that I developed a few years ago. But my my the the thing that I'm working on now that's t- turned out to be very difficult, extraordinarily difficult. I've been writing a, tr- a a book for young adults for like three years now. Hopefully, it's almost at its conclusion. But it's about mm-hmm. a young Socrates who. It's a fiction book. I've never tried fiction before. Massive oh, ha- hats off to all people who write fiction. Holy shit! It's comp- it's very difficult to write a young adult book. <laughs> Far yeah. more difficult than I ever thought it would be. But it's it's about a young Socrates who travels a mystical Greek countryside, foments a rebellion against the gods and speaks to different people of, you know, different creatures and different races, speaks across divides. He has a superpower and his superpower is reason. And we haven't really taught that to young people. In fact, we've taught just the opposite. We've taught unwarranted confidence. We've taught a kind of hubris and arrogance. We, We have taught that their feelings can be forwarded over facts and, and objective reality. So ho- hopefully the, 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 the book is going gonna, is gonna to help young adults. Complicated. That's interesting. But you, are, you don't fit the demographic criteria to write YA, the last I checked, unfortunately. <laughs> no, no. Well, I've never, written, I've never written fiction before. I know, but YA is yeah. such uh, a... Oh, no, I'm just making a joke about... Oh, you know, oh, oh, oh. <laughs> yeah, yeah, uh, yeah. Yeah, so ho- hopefully, hopefully that will help. Talk some, about capture some kid. Yeah, yeah, right. Hopefully that will help <laughs> some kids, some kids communicate. And then I'm off to Hungary in uh, uh, September, October again. Well, so Peter, you you said just yeah. now that you know yeah. the institution, well, at least academia, couldn't couldn't be safe, but but people can, and that's why you still cling on to that. You still, you know, these these videos have value. Well, right. the other thing that strikes me about these videos is also that because you are filming it and putting it online you're broadening the potential, the audience, right? So, so people can actually see you model that, that behavior, see how it's done, see that, you know, that there is, because I think the, the problem that Angel is alluding to on, on, on social media is that 
there's no reward for uncertainty. There's no reward for moving that line. In fact, it's it, there's a perverse incentive, you know, where where Correct. you get ah, see, like pwned or something whenever you change your mind. It, it, it is not cool. Right. You know, it is, you're not one of the uh, the cool people when you do that. And you, you're going to get made fun of actually most of the time. And so I guess, how do we change that? Right. Because I, I see what you're trying to do with the videos and you're, you're, you're showing people, but it seems like if we, if we can somehow change incentive structures, especially in terms of social capital, Correct. we'll get there faster. It seems. Yeah. So I, okay. So yes, everything is, you've said is correct. And there's a previous step to that. So look, anybody can live a better life. Anybody can embrace reason. Anybody can learn to think better. Anybody can learn to clean up their thinking. Anybody can, can learn the skill set that goes along with these things. It's the dispositions. It's the attitudinal dispositions that's more difficult with those. And you're right. There's an, in, an incentive structure or a disincentive structure on social media, likes, thumbs up, et cetera, et cetera. And, and look, uh, l- let's be brutally honest. It is incredibly difficult to divorce yourself from that. I am, I find myself susceptible to that. You know, I like, I'll look on my YouTube channel. I look on, you know, whatever it is. It's just, it's just, maybe it's the Achilles heel of, of the, the, the cognitive architecture. I, I don't know. Hmm. But the key thing is you, you change the moral mind either by narrative or by street epistemology. There's no other way as far as I know. And what we have to do is to rethink. Um, so how do you have a new incentive structure that rewards people, for example, saying, I don't know, or crossing the line or changing their mind or hold, especially when we have a linguistic infrastructure in place that says changing your mind is bad, like mm-hmm. flip-flopping. Mm-hmm. No, I mean, maybe there was just new evidence and you changed your mind because there was incoming evidence, you know, troops on the ground or, or what have you. So, so we have our work for cut out for us. But the most important way I think to think about this is we have to stop the causes of the contamination. We have to figure out what is preventing us from, did anybody, you do, you don't do jujitsu angel, do you? Uh, I actually do, but oh, I have, do not you? since the pandemic started, but yeah, I actually oh, do. Okay. It'd be like someone doing a roll off arm bar and then trying to grab their arm and yeah. people are just like trying to crank the arm instead of kicking off the other arm. In, in other words, the, the, the point is that we have to figure out where the source is that's discouraging people from changing their minds and actually rewarding them for being closed-minded and dogmatic. And we know where that right. is. It's the institutions. It's, it's the mm-hmm. academies. It's the academies of higher learning, the humanities mm-hmm. in general, gender studies in particular, anything with studies in it. So, uh, but the larger point is, is we have a lot of people now who do not accept the idea that there are moral facts. And if you do not accept the idea that there are moral facts, then everything is capricious morally. Now, remember, mm-hmm. most of the people who are hardcore proponents of critical social justice ideology are themselves atheists. So we can automatically do away with any you know, truths from ancient books, et cetera. So then it comes down to you live in a morally relativistic universe you, you, don't ha- you can throw out the other alternative that we get our, our um, moral truths from religious text. So then you're faced with, we live in a morally relativistic universe or there are moral facts. And if they're moral facts, then they're either drivable or they're not drivable. It seems so clear and so obvious that those are What do you mean drivable, by drivable? Sorry, we have Peter. so many people who buy- Oh, derivable. Sorry. Okay, yes. 
Yeah, derivable. Like, yeah, yeah. You can you can reason to them. You can think your way through them. And if we have a system that, you know, if you have a system that looks only in terms of powers, Foucault had one word for it, power knowledge, as opposed to really, it doesn't even have to be cooperative thinking. Like, it can even be, in, in fact, it's probably better if it's antagonistic thinking. Trying to work through to figure out what's true in the moral realm. Hmm. Or, or, or at the very least to understand someone. So I'll give you another example. I, a few years ago, I, I went to the dean of, of my university and I suggested an idea. And the idea was, why don't we get somebody from a Black Lives Matter and someone from who, not who's gone through police training tactics, but someone who teaches it. I will or somebody else can facilitate a dialogue and let's get a mutual understanding. That's what Jürgen Habermas, the philosopher, against is the purpose of communication is mutual understanding. Let's see if we can get a mutual understanding for why police do what they do. And maybe there are good reasons. Maybe I have no idea. I'm, I know nothing about police tactics. That's why we need to have someone who teaches it. And it, we need to have someone from the community who, who feels somehow aggrieved legitimately or not. It's irrelevant. But the idea is, there's a fact of the matter, and we can figure that out through human reason. And we have a bunch of people now denigrating reason, denigrating objectivity, denigrating ways of knowing, denigrating the scientific method, inventing their own epistemologies. And as long as that madness is in place, it's very difficult for people to come together and, you know, as Melissa's always said, the pro-human values or what have you. You know, instead of going down intersectionality, oh, you know, you're black or you're you know, I don't know, five feet tall, whatever. we need to be going up to superordinate identities. We need to be going up to figure out what the things are that we have in common instead of divisiveness. Anyway, that's a long way of saying, I think that we need to move the conversation from subjectivity and relativism and intersectionality toward commonalities, toward reasoning to conclusions, toward mutual understanding. And if we can center or recenter our intellectual lives, our to a certain extent, our emotional lives, our public policy, if we can recenter on that, then we can move forward as a society. Sorry, it was a long answer. But. Can you give me an example of a moral fact? Because, right, so when you do your exercise, right, and you said, you know, gravity is yeah. uh, 9.81 meter per second square or the, the speed of sound is 330 yeah. meters per second. Everyone's going to stand on the, yes, I'm sure, I'm 100% sure about this line because, you know, like to a few decimal places, yes, yeah. for sure. But, but when, you talk, when you go into the moral realm, like you make other kinds of statements, like you did one in your video was, I think, uh, we should abolish the police or defund the police, right? So that is, that's a state, statement oh, yeah. you ask yeah. people to take positions or how confident they were on that position. And what, how are you defining moral facts here? And what do you think is a moral fact? that is established, that is? Uh, yeah, here's a, well, the, the famous one is uh, do not torture small children for fun. Okay. Mm. Here's another one. Do not take a large uh, uh, industrial sewer pipe and uh, open it up and expose the city of downtown Portland. Just pump raw sewage into the streets of downtown Portland. Eh. Now, some <laughs> Sorry, people will, 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 will <laughs> it's kind of already that way That's with Ted Wheeler and his ilk, the mayor of Portland. Um, Antifa destroying the city. Yeah, well, they, they are kind of the, 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 the large sewer patch, the sewer pipe. Um, okay. So the question is, can, can you 
can an independent inquirer, you know, Charles Sanders Peirce, the philosopher calls it a community of ideal inquirers. Can, is that proposition true? Like you could think of a moral fact like expertise. Is there such a thing as moral expertise? Like there's expertise in jujitsu. You know, I go to an open mat sometimes Friday night where you, it's a no gi and a no gi, you don't wear belts. So you never really know what, what mm-hmm. rank someone is, but you can usually tell within three to five seconds on, on the yeah. outset, maybe <laughs> seven seconds. Like you can tell almost instantly. Yeah. But one of the ways, just parenthetically, you can tell is because of how relaxed someone is. The most relaxed yeah. people are always the highest belts, ah. like universally. Yep. That's the one thing, no matter what studio, anywhere in the world you go, that's the one commonality yeah. black belts have is they're relaxed. Yeah. And the one comment like getting taken, getting taken by a, a black belt or even a brown belt is like slowly being smothered by a, and crushed by a python. Like there's no, there's no rush. It's just kind of happening. Totally. The next thing you know. hundred <laughs> percent. Yeah, totally. hundred yeah. percent. Yeah. Yeah. Uh, <laughs> nice. If you get me talking about jujitsu or science fiction, I can't, I can't yeah. think anymore. I, I've lost, I lose all my, my. But my, well, no, I wanted to, so yeah, I wanted to, to push you a little bit on this thing because. Oh, moral facts. Um, That's what we're talking about. Yeah. 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 The moral facts, but yeah. you know, so uh, you should not torture young children for fun, right? Yeah. Yeah. Uh. I think I think the vast majority of people, yeah, would probably say yes. I agree with that. Uh-huh. But I think I think the rub comes in where what is what exactly is torture and what exactly is fun, right? Like that. Those two things. I feel like if you redefine or if you have a different conception of what that word means, no, then suddenly there's a lot of wiggle room. Right? Not really. Like but, but, I, I think I think what you're doing is torturing children. But no, you, no okay, I'm not look, torturing children. Look. Right? Let, let's say, you know, burning them with cigarette butts and g- giving you joy. Right. Okay. So when you talk about what, what, when you talk about what a moral fact is, in order to have a moral fact, someone has to be wrong. Mm-hmm. Right. I started talking about expertise. Like if someone plays the piano or someone does a jujitsu move or something, whatever it is, there's a, yeah. a fact of the matter about, you know, playing the violin or doing the jujitsu you know, like you don't start in a jujitsu match with you laying down. On your, if you want to win it, at least you don't want to right. lay down on your belly with your hands outstretched and hope for the best because uh, yeah. you, you will lose even against the blue belt. So, but, mm-hmm. but the, uh, the, the idea is that with a moral fact, there has to be the potential that somebody is, is somebody's claim is incorrect. Just as the right. same as Melissa's example of, you know, 9.8 meters per second squared or what have you, 451 right. paper burning. Yeah. So. Is, but that now, leads me. Yeah. That leads me to the to the you know the the quote unquote woke people, right? Right. They have moral facts. They may argue against, mm-hmm. uh, you know, they or they may argue in favor of moral relativism, and they may say that you know objective reality is nonsense and it's all kind of a construct, you- whatever. They may argue those things, but I, they do have moral facts. Okay, hold, they hold say, on. If you if you okay. disagree with such yeah. with A, B, and C, therefore, right, you're wrong. Okay, hold on. So they don't, only the most extreme woke people will say there's no objective reality. They say that um, there is an objective reality, but that um, that's mediated through our understanding through power dynamics and power differentials. Right. And right, so right. they're not claiming that there's moral facts. They're claiming that where you're situated in the power hierarchy um, influences your perception of things. And that's not entirely wrong, actually. There's, a, there's some, some right. truth to that. So they're not claiming that there's moral facts. Yeah, but, but their position that strikes me as a moral fact, right? To say that that's the framework, and they're 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 saying we must adhere to this framework because uh, it's reality. Okay, 
that's a fact. Uh, I don't right. think that they would say that it's a moral fact. Uh, but that's the problem with the ideology is you can't have, nobody's willing to talk to you about it because they're so convinced that it's true. That, that they think mm-hmm. that engaging in discourse is a kind of, not, not only violence, but it's a privilege-preserving epistemic pushback. Privilege will always seek to preserve itself, so there'd be no reason <laughs> to have the conversation with someone Same. because the only reason you do so is to preserve your own privilege. And yeah. they believe that dialogue, as a general rule, is a means to oppress people, and discourse is a means to oppress people. Now, if you said, well, is that a moral fact? Well, you'd have to see what they say. I will say this, Angel, right. this is a hard pill to swallow, but I'll tell you this. This is really going to, this is really going to, you're going to lose an IQ point from thinking about this. So I apologize in advance. But um, <laughs> if you don't subscribe to the law of non-contradiction, like if you don't have any problem with contradicting yourself or having beliefs that are contradictory, then, then none of this is an issue. So you right. can criticize, see, there you go again. You're a porter. You're thinking about it. I've d- just damaged your intellect. Sorry. <laughs> but, but it's true. It's such a deranged idea that we just assume certain rudiments of thinking. Like we just assume, you know, don't be a hypocrite. Uh, we, we, we assume, you know, don't lie. Or no, not, not don't lie, but don't contradict yourself, right? But when someone is saying that, well, contradiction is a tool of the white, of the, of the white patriarchy, I have no problem contradicting myself. Mm-hmm. So it's, it's that they've opted out of the traditional structures of not only uh, any dialectic, but any, any rudiment of thinking. Yeah. 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 And not only, not only that, in order to justify that, because it's so insane, it's so utterly divorced from reality at the most fundamental level, they have to make up their own epistemology. They have to make up their right. own way of knowing that justifies the fact that they don't ascribe to the law of non-contradiction or that everybody is whatever claim, you know, Nazis or this, you know, the systemic is another thing that comes up in the, in the videos. Um, yeah. 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 So there's a, there's an, there's a, an epistemic infrastructure in place that supports the moral claims that the, that the, the woke people are making. Mm. And that's why we're doing the, the mode, if you will, the question that I asked the most was, was, um, the only remedy oh, to past discrimination yeah. is yes. future discrimination. The only remedy, yeah. So if you and if you look back in that, if you look in that passage, the very passage that's from the book, he talks about equity. So I think I did that six or seven times because it's so important. And it's amazing that from nothing, like almost literally ex nihilo, where nobody ever heard of equity, it's now swept the entire society. It's now the North Star of all of our institutions. And so I did that, that claim for the sidewalk game, you know, the spectrum exercise. And it's amazing. People would say in that, it's like, like, no, nobody, nobody says that. Nobody. Well, really? It's now the governing value of virtually every institution in our country, including our military. Where the stakes are high. <laughs> if, yeah. And medicine. Yeah. Yeah. Me- medicine. Yep. Correct. We have our work yeah. cut out for us. That's what we're trying to do at National Progress Alliance. We're doing this. We have a sub stack where we post these videos. Uh, if you could think of someplace, conservative place where I should go, let me know. So we're, we have the NPR project. Mm-hmm. You know, we did something with Schellenberger, the chart. We did something with Gilly and, and Lindsay, the, the trans, you know, I have a series translate wokish in plain English. So that's the other thing. So many people have been hoodwinked by language, you know. I have an idea. Go, go to a conservative conference. I know NatCon, National Conservatism, is having a conference in Miami in September. Go there and try to do that. I would yeah. absolutely love to do that, to play the, the sidewalk game. 
yeah. or whatever. I'd whatever like to see the, yeah. the mirror, like the, the reflection of it on the other side and see how that plays out. Yeah. And, yeah. and I want to do it and I will do it. We just need to make sure I, I actually would like a place that's, um, on the poor side, you know, okay. so, so you can kind of, cause, cause the university, especially the Ivies where we went that you have a lot of wealthy people. And I'd like to get, I'd like to get actual diversity, you know, not just intellectual and ideally, and this is the hard part. I think it'd be easy to find only conservatives, but the game always works best if people are in different lines. Like if mm. you could find a all, like if you just find one person to sit on the strongly agree where five or six sit on the strongly disagree, the game is much better. It's just much more interesting to tease out people's thoughts. Right. And so that's why finding where you'd go is more difficult. That's true. Well, Peter, we, we want to be mindful of your time. We want to make sure to ask the last question that we ask all our guests. Yeah, yeah which is, you know, our focus at FAIR is to come up with pro-human approaches to dealing with the topics that we've discussed today, all of these different topics. So our question for you is, what does pro-human mean to you? How do you conceptualize that? And how can everyday people be more pro-human as they engage with these sorts of issues? Uh, it means treating people basically with some dignity. So I'm convinced, the older I get, I'm convinced that just as there are unified field theories or attempts at unified field theories in physics, I think there are unified field theories of human well-being. And an example of a, one, one principle, uh, there, there are several principles. Like one principle would be a fatherless home. You cannot have a fatherless home for a number of reasons. I just read Matt Thornton's manuscript, The Gift of Violence, and he goes over the, the data for uh, criminogenic factors with fatherless homes. Mm. Another is the willingness and ability to revise one's belief that will lead to human flourishing. But another, and the older I get, the more I become convinced that this is indispensable. So shall we say asset for human flourishing is that you have to listen. The problem is that most people think that they listen, but to really know if you're listening, there's this thing that you can use Rappaport's first rule. Repeat back to somebody what you think they said to you and do not proceed with the conversation until you got it, until you're correct. If you just literally did that and nothing else, you would significantly advance your relationships, the way people understand and view you. And you would be making a contribution to human flourishing. And, you know, you learn stuff too along the way. That's what I would recommend. Perfect. Peter Bogosian, thank you so much for joining us. Pleasure. Perspectives. Thanks, uh, Angel and Mosai. I appreciate it. Thank you for listening to Fair Perspectives. If you'd like to support the show, you can do it by subscribing on YouTube and on your favorite podcast platform and leaving us a positive rating and review. You can also access exclusive podcast content, such as Q&As and bonus episodes, by visiting us and signing up at fairperspectives.org. For weekly fair news and opinion pieces by members of the fair community, visit our Substack at fairforall.substack.com and tune into Fair News Weekly wherever you listen to podcasts. If you'd like to join or support the pro-human movement, visit us at fairforall.org slash join us. Thanks again and see you next time.